0: All right, thank you guys for coming out uh, to the Q&A panel in response. A Couple things that we wanna make you aware of. The the first is this is actually gonna be recorded, so if um, someone you know wasn't able to make it, we'll have that online for them to check out later. Um, In addition to that, we'll be collecting some of these cards um, from the back if you have questions, and as well as I'll be coming around with a mic too, so if you would rather not write your question down and would just ask it face to face, we can do that. Um, as well. And so to kick it off, we received a couple that that we pulled um, to begin with. And um, once Nick gets up here, because I think uh, the first two are kind of directed at his message last week on origin, so um, we'll have him come up um, to address some of that. But our panelists today are uh, Nick Lillo, our lead pastor, Larry Renault, our teaching pastor, uh, Dr. Matthewson, who is a professor at Denver Seminary, Danielle Reeves, who is our ministries pastor, and then Dave Reeves, Um, who's a chaplain um, in the area as well. Um, So each of them have been on uh, the panels throughout um, the week. So first question um, is, at what point in Genesis do you start reading the text as historical, taking it literally, versus allegory, and why?
1: (laughs) Is this all
2: right? (laughs)
3: Um, Two comments. One, I'm not taking the first 11 chapters as allegory. I'm taking it as creational literature, so it's dealing with worldview, and it's adopting the, the mechanism of the literature of that day that it's being written to ancient Near East had flood stories, had creation stories, uh, those kind of things. And he's adopting that kind of framework to give a different worldview and defend the nature of God and lay out a theology that deals with everything from marriage to sin to death to to diversity. Um, I think by the time you get to the, the account of Abraham, that becomes historical narrative and is grounded in history. And that doesn't mean anything before Chapter 11 it doesn't have some history floating around in the back. I think there may be some historical events behind that. But I don't think that's what the author is doing. And the reason I argue that is that the, I think the text gives you hints that this is not history. So even the Noah story is a very chiastic structure. And, and uh, is formed a special way in terms of the literature uh, um, so I just think along that he's just speaking to, to the framework, the creation literature that exists in his days. But, but I would simply, I, 12 to me becomes historical. I, I do think that I want to argue for a more of a historical Adam and Eve in some context, but I don't think that y- you have to see that whole narrative 1 through 11 as historical to do that. I don't know. You,
4: who else yeah, is... I would probably start a little sooner. I, okay. I, I think in chapter 2 of Genesis, um, there's history. Especially when the four rivers are named, which kind of places where things are at that t- time of the world. Um, I also think chapter 5 and the genealogy of Seth is an actual genealogy. So uh, I, I would probably start... To, yeah, I, I'm not sure about... So
3: it has historical elements. Historical that. elements, yeah. and I would yeah. agree with
4: you. And I also would... And this is where Nick and I maybe would argue some, but I, I actually think Jesus thought Adam was a historical person <laughs> the way that he referenced Adam. So in, the, in that sense, you could say that Adam, being historical, it started in Genesis 1 and 2. But.
5: And can I just point out, I love the fact that you two disagree. And, I mean, there's no hindrance of relationship, fellowship, in any way, straight, shape, or form, of how you seriously you try to apply the Bible to your life and God's truth, and you disagree.
4: Do you want to? Every add, day, I'm <laughs> gonna. I'm gonna. Th-
3: this whole issue of the historicity of Adam is becoming a bigger issue theologically. I think. Do you want to speak to that? You probably know far more about it than either Larry or I. Um, yeah.
2: It. <clears throat> I, I mean the whole. And the whole thing behind this question, too, it's important to understand, is we're not, <clears throat> we're not asking a question of the reliability of Scripture or inerrancy. We're asking a question of what kind of literature is this. As everyone agrees that there are places in the Bible that are not, they're not meant to be historical. And I, I mentioned the first service, parables are one of those. Uh, Jesus doesn't, never claims that the parables actually historically happen. Their story, we have all kinds of examples of rabbis teaching stories just like Jesus, using the same characters. In fact, a lot of, them have, a lot of the parables have elements in them that just uh, literally could not happen. And that's the whole point. They're, they're stories meant to teach a point. Jesus isn't claiming that this actually happened. So uh, the same is true with the early parts of Genesis. One might wanna say, yeah, this is, this is historical uh, or or someone might say no, it's more poetic and not historical. Uh, but that's not a question of <clears throat> whether you're sane or not or whether you're a good student or not or whether you hold the authority of the Bible. It's simply a question of what kind of literature do I think this is. And so uh, it, that kind of comes, I think, comes down to that. I, I, I think uh, probably the same way that there's a, a lot of history in the first 11 chapters. But it might not be the author's intention, especially in the creation account. I think he's more communicating a theological message in, in the first few chapters of Genesis, that although it's historically based at the same time, uh, I, I, I see the author uh, basically <clears throat> the, uh, finding creation as God constructing a temple where he's going to dwell with humanity. In fact, that becomes the basis for the tabernacle and the temple that get built in the rest of the uh, the narrative. So, <clears throat> so I, I again, it's just important to realize that we're dealing with what kind of literature is this? Not whether Larry or Nick are more serious about the Bible, but how they understand this is the kind of literature they
3: find. I'm far more serious. Than this. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't want to say that up here. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, Another question uh, that we received was, um, you said that the Bible makes accommodations for the original reader's lack of knowledge, saying that you also accommodate when your child asks where babies come from. If this is true, then are we all adults still being told we came from storks since the Bible doesn't change? If so, doesn't that mean the Bible is telling us a small lie, therefore making it imperfect? How can the Bible accommodate and still be perfect?
5: <laughs> I, need to read it again. I, I, I mean, one one of the points you made earlier was um, it it is written to specific audiences, so it, it's just it's not that it's lacking truth. It is only trying to you know even our language. The sun sun rises and the sunset. It doesn't you know that was part of your point in your sermon. You can't it, it the sun doesn't set. The sun doesn't rise. But it's it's a ridiculous thing to try to even speak in a way, you know, I, if, if I had Neil Tyson DeGrasse like next to me and I'm watching the sunset, well, how would I even describe it without using that word? And of course, he's this great astronomer that would say, I'm, I'm lying. He's not going to say I'm lying. He's, we're just trying to have a conversation.
2: It's true.
3: Yeah, I, I think it goes back to the intent of the, to the original audience. I happen to believe in the creation narratives. He, he's taking on the view that was current in that day that, um, the the world was flat, that it was supported on pillars. There was water below and water above, and I think you see that indicated in the text. I think it's phenomenological language. I think he's accommodating to their worldview at that point. That's obviously not our worldview. We have far more understanding, Uh, um, but we have also the understanding to look back at that and understand he's using phenomenological language. That's how things appeared. So, I don't think he's uh, trying to affirm that's the n- true nature of the universe. I just think he's accommodating to that understanding. And I think you know if genesis he was trying to to tell us what the worldview is now, I think he he would probably approach it differently because we're a different culture. So I think he's accommodating to the understanding of the original audience and uh, um, I think he has to I mean. What what would the author say if he said I'm going to communicate the creation of the world on my terms and with my scientific understanding back then? What what would you write to an ancient culture? Are you going to tell them about the Big Bang and uh, you know about particles they don't even understand or have a concept? I mean they don't. It, 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 you just couldn't communicate, so you have to accommodate to some degree. Anybody want to help me out here, <laughs> or am I just digging the hole deeper for no, myself? <laughs>
6: but I was thinking about the fact that if you think back, however many, not that long ago, when we didn't have cell phones, if I tried to explain to my grandfather who died, you know, a number of years ago, what cell phones are like, he wouldn't—he wouldn't have been able, in that time, to think forward to what what the technology is even about and i think that there's some sort of parallel that it's hard it's easy for us to look backwards but it's much harder to anticipate looking forwards and so the op- the original authors would have had to have written you know in this case to my grandfather's understanding but not to mine so i think that you know we forget because it's we're looking back
3: I, and i do I, I do think there's problems that arise from what i'm articulating because then the question comes when when is god accommodating and when is not and I think that's a challenge to try to figure out.
5: And, and I mean, the whole approach to scripture puts us in a humble place. <laughs> and and uh, there's a quote that we give to my grandfather credit to. I don't know where he got it, but you know, some, sometimes when we talk about God, he says it's like uh, one amoeba trying to explain to another amoeba that, how men flew to the moon. <laughs> and he was an engineer. Um, and, and the other amoeba doesn't even understand the question. We're, we're still all so, God's trying to make sense of things in a way that we just can't fully understand. I mean, so much is revealed to us through Jesus and, you know, through scripture, but we're, we're still humans trying to understand God. And if that doesn't overwhelm you a little bit um, and humble you, um, we're probably missing a piece of
2: God. And it's, it's one thing to accommodate in a way that is still consistent with the truth, as opposed to, to the example, the stork, um, I mean, that's, that's not even, you know, remotely related to how birth takes place. I, I can't think of a way you'd accommodate that, but it's, it's one thing to, to accommodate in a way that doesn't contradict the truth and is still consistent with that, uh, as opposed to accommodating in a way that deceives or says one thing that is not even coherent or congruent with what
3: This is just speculation. I think one of the reasons you get in the book of Revelation and it's apocalyptic and symbolic is because nobody had, I I think if it was written today, it'd still be symbolic. Because I think there's a convergence of dimensions and aspects of reality. We have no clue how this is going to come down. Uh, um, And I think he's just using symbolism to to communicate. That's just my hypothetical. I I wouldn't argue for that very strongly. But I wonder. Uh, if that.
4: well In order to prepare for next week, everyone should this week before next weekend read Ezekiel 1. That's all I'm going to say about that.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I really like Dave's point that, that, that accommodating without distorting the truth, which is what I think we try to do with our kids. I mean, I, I never told my kids storks brought babies. I also didn't draw pictures. Uh, I mean, there's something in between where it's still true. You know, babies come from mommy's tummies. Oh, that's where they come from. I'm like, that's fine. (laughs) You know?
0: All right. Another question. We actually have uh, two questions that are on the same thread. Um, But the first is the book of Enoch, why was it not included? Um, Jesus and Jude both refer to it. And then how do we believe um, the Bible is the word of God? When man decided what books to include, why not the Gospel of Thomas, Judas, Mary Magdalene? Um, How do we handle some of those extra-canonical texts that that, um, we've said don't belong in the (laughs) canon?
2: That's you, David. Can I have some more pizza, please? (laughs) Um, Let me me start by saying, first of all, that when we say say books like First Enoch are not canonical, we don't mean that they're useless, they're foolish, they're garbage, they're nonsense. Uh, people still value them, and I still find value in reading them, it, much in the same way that you would read something written by, insert your favorite author, um, you know, writing on a biblical book or a commentary or something like that. <clears throat> uh, but so, so the, the fact that Jesus and Jude and uh, I think 1 Peter and 2 Peter both refer to the story of Enoch as well, sections of Enoch, is just because they refer to those does not mean that they treat them or they thought they were scripture. Uh, again, um, uh, when, <clears throat> what, when, when one looks at all the Jewish literature, when one looks at Jesus, uh, it's, it seems to me that they excluded those books, they excluded the book of Enoch, again, not that they didn't see they were valuable, it's just that they never considered them as authoritative scripture along with the others. So it makes sense to me that, that Jude would refer to Enoch and thought that at that point his prophecy was true, much in the same way that Paul felt free to quote a pagan poet, or to, to quote the, the words of some of the gods when he was speaking to the people in Athens. Uh, so that doesn't mean that he thought they were authoritative scripture, it just means that he found some value in them or they helped him out in that situation. So, uh, a book like First Enoch is indeed valuable, and New Testament authors do seem to be aware of it, uh, but there's really no evidence that they considered it as scripture alongside of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the, the Torah and, and other Old Testament books. Um, as far as the second part of the question, <clears throat> uh, I think, uh, as uh, Pastor Nick said, mentioned over and over again in the sermon, is the Bible's both a human and a divine book. Uh, so uh, I, I think there was a very human process involved in deciding which books would be considered a scripture. Uh, there's no need to doubt that. And, but to me, uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the things that I think points to the reliability of scripture, makes it so different from every other religion. That, that it's not just golden plates dropped out of the sky with a list of books that Christians should believe in, or, or some somebody being illuminated at their desk and writing down, uh, you know, God's will and, and that's it. But instead we find that God, and that's the way God works. As you read scripture, God chooses to work through human beings and very human processes, including sending his son to be incarnate in a human being. So it doesn't surprise me that there would be a very human process that God would work through to determine uh, which books he would consider, we, we should consider as scripture, and I, I point you back to some of the criteria that uh, Pastor Nick pointed to. So it wasn't just an arbitrary, uh, let's you know, let's use these books and get rid of these because we don't like them, uh, but at the same time, God was still working through His people. In fact, we saw in Scripture He promises to lead them in truth. That's the kind of thing we would expect that, that uh, God would lead them and work through very human processes to bring about the recognition of what books the church indeed would consider as authoritative scripture. So I don't wanna deny human process, uh, but at the same time recognize that, and it seems that even the early Christians, when they were formulating what books they'd consider as scripture, they thought that God's spirit was working through that process, and that wasn't just a human, human process.
3: Glad you came today.
0: <laughs> Does anybody have a, a follow-up question that they would like to mm-hmm. ask based on anything that's kind of been presented um so far? If you <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay a little longer. Perfect. I'm glad for that. Um, all right. um another question that actually I think uh, ties with what you were just saying is um, that we know that all people are sinners and that even after we've been saved we can continue to sin. Paul acknowledges I do the things I don't want to do and Paul confronted Peter um, for teaching wrongly. How do we know that the writer's own sin hasn't crept into their writings?
2: (laughs) Uh, Good question. Um, One way I'd respond to that is to say that even though... Well, part, part of it is simply because the Bible itself does claim to be God's word and inspired, and, and God, we know God does not make a mistake, God does not lie, so the conclusion is scripture is reliable and does not have a mistake in it. But let me back up and say, even at human level, because, just because human beings are sinful doesn't mean they can't produce something that lacks mistakes. I've had research papers from students that were meticulously written, and I gave them, I gave them a 98 or a 99, just because I don't like to give a hundred (laughs) thousand. So so just because human beings are sinful does not mean necessarily that that's going to affect every single thing they do. So it's possible that, especially with the work of the spirit, that being sinful human beings, they could still produce a document that was not mistaken and lacked air. And uh, I think that's precisely what you find in scripture, and that's precisely what you find the scripture claiming for itself.
3: It, it might be helpful to separate the notion of process and product. So the process is very human and, and messy and complicated, but I think God superintends the end result. And, and I think that's the that, that even in the process of the canon, God's spirit was there, in the process of the writing of books, and God's preserving the end result. At least that's what Scripture seems to be indicating.
4: Yeah, in 2 Timothy 3, it's a, what's inspired. It's not the writers who are inspired. It's the, what they wrote that says is inspired. And as well as the Spirit's involvement in Second Peter 1, where it talks about holy people of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you get the sense that it's the final product is what's inspired, But even in the process, the Holy Spirit is involved, kind of hovering over everything involved with that process.
0: All right. Um, This uh, person asked, uh, God is black and white, that is in his nature. There is no middle ground, it is either good or evil. Um, This being said, how then can God's word be left up to interpretation? This would mean that there is gray in the word of God, who is perfect in black and white? How would you respond to that question?
3: I'm not I sure I buy the assumption that God is black and white. No. I, I, I think he's created a reality that things are very nuanced, and there's a lot of gray. And I think that's part of the beauty of creation. Um, so I, would an I example of that be,
0: for instance, like uh, someone who lied to protect Jews during the Nazis that God made. Not see that as just a black and white thing, or
3: yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> or Rahab, yeah, okay. right. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, okay. I don't did you? Did, were you gonna say something as well? Oh,
5: I was. Um, oh. it, it really is hard. Uh, the last, the sermons the last couple of weeks have deconstructed a, that little black and white. Um, version of reading the Bible. And, and it does probably feel unstabilizing. Um, but, but, you know, you have everyone up here who is either in seminary um, for Bible knowledge. I mean, it has been our life and um, our occupation, our our, our uh, dreams in life, to take these words as seriously as we possibly can. And we're trying to understand them, again, as the original audience. And we're doing our best. But Everyone always interprets everything through our lenses. We just can't not do that. So the, the, sh- the only way humans can interact is through the gray and not, um, you know, I, I think God, God has ultimate truth and God, but, but the way we can see it, we are limited because of our finitude, because of our sinfulness. Um, and it probably feels like we're saying everything, just how you interpret. But it is how you interpret. That's, that's all
3: we have. I I think you get some good examples in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Those are not black and white books. Ecclesiastes is saying, you you told me in Proverbs that it was a formula. Do this, do this, and it results in this, and that's not always true. Ecclesiastes is on the end of the other spectrum. And then Job says, I did this and this, and it didn't work out. So I think those poetic books are saying life isn't as black and white as, sometimes want it to be I mean I'd like it to be but it, I'm sure it is
2: yeah, I, and you even, you even find in the New Testament that text from Second Peter where even Peter w- we don't know what collection of Paul's letters he had but, and he's probably uh, maybe a little bit of a jab at, Pete, at Paul <laughs> but Peter seemed to be confused with some of the stuff Paul wrote and he's probably writing not very long after Paul's letters are collected uh, even Jesus' disciples still they didn't quite get it and at times, you know, at least I read the Gospel of Mark especially, and I think, what a bunch of idiots, they didn't understand this, uh, but, you know, they had Jesus addressing them directly, and they still weren't able to put all the pieces together. They still found a lot of what Jesus said confusing. Uh, so that's not to say that God is a confusing God, and he tries to upset us and confuse us, uh, but at the same time, it is to recognize that, yeah, we are, we are finite, sinful human beings, and... Um, going to make, struggle to make sense of things sometimes. I I would also point everyone back to what I mentioned in the sermon, is not everything is open to interpretation. Uh, The the early church has been consistent, the church has been consistent throughout the centuries as to what they see as clear and as non-negotiables in the Christian faith. (coughs) Yeah. Um, An additional question is,
0: could the early accounts in the OT be influenced by the political narratives of time. Um, An example that they give is David's non-firstborn status influencing the telling of other ancient stories. Um, And if, yeah, if you ask that question and would maybe be able to um, interpret it a little bit, I I think the thought is that maybe if uh, the early accounts were written at a later date, um, could they be influenced? Like, for instance, the maybe the argument that they're post-exilic. Some of the early um, oh. accounts would. Um, how did? How does that interplay with the the um, political narratives of a time influence the writing later? Not sure if I interpreted that for whoever was asking. But okay, great. <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah, so I asked the question. Uh, so, so basically, uh, the more that I'm reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you know, I think you see a lot of descriptions of violence and a lot of, you know, that are kind of in strike contrast to what you see uh, the character of God being in the New Testament. And so and, so, and that kind of raises my question is, is the, a lot of the history, and especially the Old Testament stories, was that written at a time when that was more purposeful, more political, instead of this is actually rehappening. So example, you know, if we were to retell the timeline of like 9-11, someone might say, okay, hey, we introduced something like gay rights, and then this event happened, and that was God's will, right? So that may not be the exact historical accuracy, uh, but that's kind of a retelling of that event in that timeline, so I, so, so I guess that's kind of my, I don't know if that's a long, rambling, confusing question. But that's just kind of the question of where, where is the difference of how much of this influenced by the early uh, you know, First Temple politics and time and versus how much of this is actually historically you know, accurate?
5: I do think there are some pieces in what you're saying. When we're saying it's written to a specific audience, there may be all sorts of pieces we don't even understand, and, and we may not get to understand. They may lead us in a place of confusion. <laughs> because we don't understand all the politics of what was going on in that moment and everything they're dealing with. But I think those are the exceptions. I think there's a lot of stories that we can um, know quite a bit about. I,
2: I think it's a both and. <clears throat> that, for example, the temple, uh, it's, there's all kinds of evidence that other religions had temples that looked li- just like Israel's temple. Uh, so what does that mean, that Israel's just a copy of everybody else? Well, no, there's all kinds of dissimilarities as well. But, but once more, to me, that's what adds validity to the Bible because it demonstrates God works through history and through very human means. And so why wouldn't God choose to dwell in a temple that in a way that readers would have been familiar with from other cultures? Again, it was very distinct because at the center of the temple in Israel was not pagan gods, it was the law and the Ark of the Covenant where they felt that's where God dwelled with his people. Uh, so, so uh, I, I think what you find in the narratives is indeed stories that reflect what is going on in the culture, because that's how God works. He incarnates Himself historically. He works through historical means. Uh, but so, so, but that doesn't mean just because it resembles the culture politically, historically, does not mean it's un- unhistorical. It just means, to me, that makes it more historical. That, that this isn't just some story dropped out of the sky or some fantasy story. It's rooted in the history of culture, uh, of of the people and culture of the day. So I think it's a both end. It does reflect the politics and history of the time. But it's also accurate accurate history because that, that's how God works.
3: I think you have a good example in Chronicles and First Kings. Those are uh, somewhat similar to... similar periods of history told from different perspectives to reach different audiences, and I think politics was behind that. Chronicles is told more from, I think, a priestly perspective, uh, um, trying, you know, so, so they don't paint the individuals as badly as King's gives you a little more raw data, but I think that probably com- uh, what was in light of the political situation going on, what they're trying to do with the books.
1: Example, like when God commanded, you know, the Israelites and the Canaanites, you know, to destroy and kill all the, the men, women, children, and all this stuff. And when they just killed the men, he came back and said, "Okay, you guys messed up." You know, so so you get an understanding of the character of God, at least from the writer's perspective. So I guess my question is, is you know, when we, you know, when I come across and I read this, what am I to make of this? Am I to make of this? Is this just a retelling of the experience of what someone thought that God was telling them in order to justify what happened? Or is this something that God actually do we think He really told them to go kill all the men, women, children in the Canaanite and kill the dogs and the livestock and everything, just for you know purposes of you know whatever.
2: Yeah, I, I mean I think that's part of it that God <clears throat> And first of all, to back up, some of those stories, that sounds odd, why would God command them to go kill? Uh, What is interesting, one of my colleagues has done a lot of research and said a lot of those cities that God commands Israel to go basically destroy were military outposts. It's not just like going to downtown Denver and destroying everybody willy-nilly. Most of these were military outposts. But I I think that's, uh, at one level, what you find going on is this is how warfare works, and uh, the, other, the other part too, I do think that uh, very, very, very seldom do you see Israel not acting out of defense, self-defense. But, but I, I think that's part, of this, that, that's part of what's going on, is, is this is how warfare took place, this is what's going on, and God is simply working for the culture. So I, I don't think there's any reason to say, oh, this is unhistoric or just someone making this up to justify this again, I think it's more they're simply recording this is how this is how God worked in
3: this situation. I, also, I think you run into battle language. In other words, things are, are stated in hyperbole. Uh, um, so they'll say they slaughtered all the Amalekites, none were left. And then two stories later, the Amalekites are back and you go, well, assume one thing, the author's not an idiot, right? He knows <laughs> that, that they didn't destroy all the Amalekites, but Some of that's the nature of the literature. So if you read a sports page that, this is a stupid illustration, but the Broncos annihilated the San Diego Charter, just killed them. There wasn't a man standing. Well, you read that 300 years from now, and you think, what the heck? You know, they killed everybody. Well, no. And I think that's, so they'd oftentimes exaggerate because that was the the nature of the literature. So then the Amalekites show back up, and they're not all killed. It's just the genre. And they understood that. when, Just like we understand, I don't think it's untrue that we annihilated the, the San Diego Chargers, right? We did. <laughs> did, did we kill? No. So, so it's hard to read back, you know, in that culture. I, I don't know how you react to that. Uh, um, that may be off, but that's, that's, I don't think that explains all what you're asking about do they commit genocide? But I, I think some of the literature we need to be careful with.
0: All right. An additional question. Um, this uh, might actually feed off, of it it's uh, about God's character in a way. Uh, a question I'd love to hear a sermon on is the question of the existence of hell um, and why we believe in it. How do we reconcile with a loving God? Um, why would he create such an experience? Um, I think this is a, a common question for a lot of people, but essentially, well, how can a good God allow for the existence
7: of hell, and how do we defend that? You've spoken I about that, haven't you? I have. I <laughs> have.
4: So I think I've said enough. <laughs> 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 uh, a, a couple of thoughts. Um, I, I think sometimes we have this I- idea of hell, that it it it's a place that, uh, you know, people end up there and they're screaming to get out and they're being held against their will and it's just a torture chamber well that is not the idea of hell or the essence of hell Uh, I I think that anyone who is in hell uh, it was their choice to go there Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way once there's only two kinds of people those who say to God your will be done or those to whom God says your will be done and uh, the essence of hell is that if you don't want God in your life here, God will give you a place in the afterlife uh, apart from him. Because well, why would you want to be near God? Actually, the worst kind of hell would be if you don't want God in your life and you end up in heaven. That would be hell. And uh, so it's, it's the idea of uh, hell being a, a place that where you would spend the rest of your existence getting essentially what you wanted. In life, and that's to be completely separated from hell. You know, the other question about hell as always, and then I'll let someone else jump in on this. The other question about, you know, how literal do you take the images? Is it a place of, you know, uh, the gnashing of teeth and and burning fire and you know extreme torment? There are arguments on both sides of godly commentators and scholars who so some take it more literally, s- some don't. Uh, There's even a good strain of scholars like John Stott who didn't believe in a literal hell, but just believed in annihilation. Um, And so uh, I think there's room for debate as to how literally we interpret that place of separation from God. I'll stop there and let others speak in. Yeah, I, I
2: mean, I think Larry's exactly right. The hell is yeah often we think of it, yeah people get into hell and they find, oh, I made a mistake i don 't want to be here but but no it's I, I think even even whether you take those images literally or not as as bad as hell is, people will still choose that over life in god 's presence it's kind of, I think what it, so they 're not wishing, oh no, I wish I would have changed my uh, I, I remember all these uh, uh, this kind of dates me to the chick tracks the little tracks and uh, kind of you better explain me, that I, a yeah. little more: No I don't <laughs> want to sure. explain it. <laughs> were, they were these evangelistic tracks kind of and um, a part of them was always a portrayal of hell and what that was like. and you come away with this I, I was you know, just had a horrible images of, of hell and what it was and, and what it meant. and I, I blame it on my older brother for introducing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <clears throat> but, but nothing could be further from the truth. Hell, as I understand it from the, especially the New Testament, yeah, it's not somewhere where God just indiscriminately throws people and then they wish, oh, I wish I could have changed my life. I wish I would have responded and this isn't fair. No, they, no matter how bad it is, they will always choose that eternally over life in God's presence.
4: I always thought it was interesting in Jesus' story about the rich man and Lazarus. It's interesting that the rich man who's in hell never asked to get out in that story, but instead is still bossing God around and telling God exactly what he wants for uh, his life, even though he's in hell. Uh, So it kind of, again, makes that point that I, I don't think people are in hell screaming to get out.
0: All right, last question. Evolution question mark <laughs> so if someone would want to uh, expand on that, you' welcome, but I'm guessing it's the idea of is evolution yeah,
5: my views are evolving <laughs> what did you say? My views are evolving
3: yeah. <laughs> i I was trying to make the argument last week that the text isn't uh, drawing speaking to that. I think some people will go to the text and say, well, they, they produced after their own kind. But again, that's phenomenological language. Rabbits produce rabbits, donkeys produce donkeys. I don't think they're, they're making a statement that there's no macroevolution. I just don't think the text is addressing it. So then, if that is the case, then I think the question of evolution becomes more of a scientific one and where you weigh, weigh in on the science. I I would push back on the grand theory of evolution, that evolution explains everything in the human dynamic. I I think that's incorrect. Uh, um, But I'm open to God using an evolutionary process in the the development of humankind. I'm not a scientist, so I don't weigh in very heavily on that debate. I think there's people of you here who could weigh in and and, uh, uh, speak to that. I, I just in saying the scriptures don't answer the question.
5: Yeah, I think that's your, your, been your main point um, in the origins talk is that the scriptures allow for science to give us some explanation inside of this. I mean, but, but the scriptures also give us a very clear sense that God is the creator and the designer. And I, I, I just can't imagine any human creation, so we get to be creative, we get to be artists, that could adapt <laughs> um, through time. I mean, that, that would be the most amazing piece of human artwork ever, and that if we have a creator that created it and set things in motion in order to um, adapt to the changing of the world, I mean, all the more glory to God in in everything. Um, But the scripture says it's it's God-designed, God-created, you know, and, and with intimacy with God, walking in the garden with God. That's amazing.
4: I would, I would, yeah. To me, evolution—the idea of evolution—or cre- those are uh, mechanisms uh, that we're talking about. So the the bottom line issue for me in terms of worldview would be uh, material, uh, naturalistic explanation of the universe versus a supernatural explanation of the universe. That that's the real question, and that's where I would push hard against, you know, the idea of a naturalistic explanation for the world. That takes, in my view, as much faith to believe. As a supernatural explanation of the world that we just are products of uh, random chance, you know what however that chance happened and even you know scientists have explained the odds of that happening that we're just here by random chance uh, are can I use the word miraculous uh, that that could ever happen? So to me that's that's the deep question under all evolution creation there they're just mechanisms. the deep question is how Are we here by naturalistic explanation or supernaturalistic explanation? Because that changes everything, the answer to that question.
0: All right, we've
7: got a few minutes left, so we'll take a a few questions from the audience. Sorry, going going off of that, um, forgive me for paraphrasing here, but you say basically when it comes to the issue of evolution uh, that the Bible, forgive me for paraphrasing again, but leaves it open for debate and leaves it open for science to explain it. Well, aside from my uh, studies in, you know, the world of science, I'm still in college, but, I mean, the Bible specifically says, you know, whether it was a million years or a day, for the days, that he made the animals, and then he made humans from the dust of the ground, whether that's literature, Mm -hmm. creation literature, or, you know, physical truth, I mean, that's still pretty big evidence why would the author say specifically animals than separate humans if there is a possibility for evolution. That doesn't make sense to me.
3: A couple comments. The order of what he creates is different in the two creation accounts. So you have a a, a problem within the literature itself. Um, And just because God says I created Adam from the dust of the ground, in in Job 10 uh, he's says, I created Job out of the clay and molded him. Well, my guess is Job was created the normal way human beings are created through pregnancy and development within the womb. So in, in Job's case, we want to say, well, yeah, that's just a metaphor and figurative language. We know that's not literally true. He didn't create him from from clay. Well, I think you have to open, be open to the same thing, that when it talks about God creating Adam from the ground, that's... It's figurative language. He's not trying to give you an order of creation. He, he's not trying to say what kind of process he used. I, I think Dave, Dave is right. He, he's talking about this temple and that he's creating this image, this idol. The word for image is idol, statue. That's us, we're to be representative. So I don't think he's trying to give us anything concrete in terms of the mechanics of the creation. And I think that's, uh, you know, in Psalm, 139, he says, God knitted me together in the womb. Well, I don't think God has big kni- knitting needles, right? That's metaphorical language. So he's not talking to process there. He's just talking about something deeper that we're created in the image of God and reflect his, his function to represent him.
5: And for, for me, I think you're... you're uh engage with what I was saying too, um, there's micro and macro evolution and some is a purely naturalistic process and some is a supernatural. I'm, I'm very, very, very very much on the supernatural s- side of things and I, I do think there is something different from humanity than from all of the other animals in, in creation. Um, and, and for me, that's the separation, um, you know, that you know, as soon as, you know, I think my dog has a soul, <laughs> but <laughs> I think he's going to hell. Um, no no, I, no my dog doesn't have a soul I, it is different I lo- I love my dog but I'm not gonna do you know I'm not gonna put a million dollars into my dog's healthcare <laughs> you know I but I would do that for my child and uh, my my values of between a human being and, and the animal um, kingdom is, is differentiates and that reflects that piece so when, for me accepting some parts of evolution there's other parts I absolutely
6: I think one of the things that's hard about all of these questions is that we're wired to want to have the answers and we're wired to want the black and white solutions. But there's an element of God that's mysterious that we won't totally understand some of these questions until we get to see him face to face. So I just wanna name that because there's, I mean, it's hard when you're wrestling through some of these big questions, but there are some that we can read and we can talk and we can discuss. They're just pieces of God that we're not gonna fully understand.
7: Good segue to my question, Danielle. Thanks for setting me up (laughs) there. Uh, Thank you so much for all the nuance, all the the cognitive thinking that's helping us be complex uh, in this. But talk to me a little bit about how truth is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit as well.
5: God just speaks to me. (laughs) Keith, come here and answer your own question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you well enough to know you have some answers. <laughs> okay, well they got Prep. prepped, so.
2: <laughs> I think Nick did so i No. let him know. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd say a couple, this uh, just brings up a whole, uh, whole broader answer, but just a, a couple of things. Number one, is I do, I do believe the Holy Spirit is in this entire process and <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit works, and I'm not sure I can always explain it and demonstrate it from Scripture, but the Holy Spirit works through evidence and the cognitive process. Uh, although even then that doesn't guarantee that both uh, Pastor Nick and Pastor Larry, uh, both relying on the Holy Spirit, will come to the exact same conclusion Uncertain so the holy spirit is involved i think the holy spirit's main job is to help us to do our work well to help us to think clearly to help us to uh, uh, especially to help us to see the relevance and to enable us to live it out in our own lives but i'm not sure that the holy spirit is a guarantee that we will all come up with the exact same answer if that's the case then the holy spirit has done a very poor job because we still disagree on things although we're uh, you know, the same godly indiv- men and women who uh, are, uh, have intellectual gifts and abilities who examine the same scripture and come up with a different view. Um, that's difficult to which one has the spirit more than the other. Uh, so I, I do think the Holy Spirit is involved. I, I think our work is impoverished if we don't rely on the Holy Spirit to help us to think clearly, to do our work well, to not miss things, to see things. More clearly, uh, especially to appropriate and apply God's truth to our lives, to be convinced of his truthfulness. But at the same time, still that still leaves wiggle room in us, having to think and and even disagreeing at times with each other. I don't think the Holy Spirit will lead us astray again on the major issues that He's always led the church to see, as, as things like who Jesus is, His death on the cross, His resurrection. Uh, where truth lies and the scripture itself is the word of god those sorts of things i don't think the spirit will lead us astray on
3: i also think sometimes when we ask that question we individualize the work of the spirit rather than seeing him working corporately Uh, um so it's interesting if you go to ephesians be filled with the spirit what if that's more of a uh, corporate manifestation than an individual manifestation and it kind of changes the, the nature of what we're, we're talking about. Because when I'm asking, well, is the Holy Spirit going to convince me of the right truth? I'm not sure that's primarily what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, it is the spirit of truth, but it may be more of a corporate function. So I would argue that you see the, the Holy Spirit involved in the, the community of faith coming to good conclusions about the nature of the canon thing. Individually, where I experience the Holy Spirit is more in the artistic side of Scripture and its richness and its poetry, and, uh, uh, um, and I'm wowed with it. But I, I don't think it's controlling my intellectual conclusions. I want to be empowered by Him. But, uh, you know, God is the great allower, and He's allowed people to come to bad conclusions <laughs> about <laughs> their interpretation of Scripture. I, I think He, yeah.
5: I also think the Spirit is always involved in character development, so um, there's been a lot of church splits and arguments over the years over Holy Spirit-inspired people coming to different conclusions. um, If one of the conclusions the Holy Spirit isn't inspiring you to is humility, um, (laughs) you're probably not listening to the right Spirit. It was your pizza.
4: I would just add, too, uh, I think the primary key th- uh, work of the Holy Spirit, it seems, in the New Testament. Uh, it was J.A. Packer that, that said this years ago that the the Holy Spirit is the floodlight on Jesus Christ. So he's always pointing to Jesus. So it's not only the essentials, but primarily the Holy Spirit illumines the human mind to Jesus. And uh, the, 2 Corinthians 3, I think, verse 18, that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ. That's, uh, that's the, the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit and the human soul and mind.
6: And I'd tag on to that, kind of a combination of the two, but I see him as also working on our character development because part of our goal, part of who God creates us to be is to be image bearers of him. And so I think the Holy Spirit works through us through that character development so that we then reflect that image accurately onto other people.
0: Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with us and to field questions. There's some hard ones thrown at you, so appreciate your, your diligence and um, openness. Um, a couple things for you guys is uh, I'd like to make you guys aware on our podcast, um, on our either our website or uh, on the app, we have a lot of sermons over the years that have addressed these different issues. Um, so if you're interested, you can go and look there. Um, in addition to that, Um, We have all of the emails of our panelists today up there, so if you have further questions, feel free uh, to send them their way. And then I would just like to end with a a prayer for us today um, as we release. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this afternoon. Um, God, as as Dave just said, um, you lead us to humility. And so uh, I thank you for the um, space that we have to disagree with one another, um, for the space that we have to come together in unity um, a- around conversations that we may have very differing opinions on. And so uh, I pray, Father, uh, for this church that as we continue these conversations, that you would be present, um, that uh, we would be led by your spirit um, and the spirit of unity um, so that uh, the world outside might know you um, uh, more. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Have a good afternoon.